Father, we have much to be thankful for because of your goodness in our lives. Help us to taste and see that you are good and as a result, call out in praise to you and call others to do the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm number 34 tonight. Psalm number 34. Four things that you need to know about this psalm as we begin. First, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving psalm is a psalm of gratitude uh, to the Lord for responding to a specific request. There are 15 of these types of psalms. We've looked at three of them so far, kind of over the last couple of years. And um, this is one of those 15. It's the third most frequent kind of psalm. The most frequent, as I mentioned before, is the lament psalm, 65 of those, and then the praise psalms are next. Now, the difference between a praise psalm and a thanksgiving psalm is that a praise psalm uh, praises God for His character and or His works in general, but doesn't talk about a specific request that was answered. Here, in a thanksgiving psalm, the psalmist, in this case David, is actually he's calling out to God in praise or thanksgiving because of God responding to a specific request. So that's the first thing that you need to know. Second thing you need to know is that this is a psalm of David. See that in the inscription. Third, it was at a time when he was fleeing from Saul. Um, it tells us that, that he was uh, pretending to be crazy. He feigned madness uh, when he was among the Philistines there in, in the city of Gath which is Goliath's hometown. Um, and there he, he was discovered by the Philistines and, and they certainly remembered that David was Israel's champion and that David killed their champion. And um, so they were ready to kill him. But he, he prayed out to God and prayed for help. David pretended to be crazy and God delivered him. Uh, fourth thing you need to know is that this is an acrostic psalm. There are a few of these in the psalms. That is... Every verse starts uh, with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So one of the most famous examples is Psalm 119, where you have a whole section starts with Aleph and then Beit and then Gamel and so on. And throughout the whole thing, if you were to look at Psalm 119, you see that each, um, each section is headed by one of the different Hebrew letters. Well, here, it's actually each verse starts with a different Hebrew letter. And the purpose of this, remember, is that for people in the ancient Near East, they don't have a written copy that they have in their home where they can just go back and read the psalm over and over again. And so when they taught in the Old Testament and when they wrote, they often did it in ways that would use mnemonic devices, that is, ways that would help people to remember. And here's one way that they could help people remember. Just start each line with a new... Uh, a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, And because this is an acrostic, we should learn from this that that praise to God is not necessarily spontaneous. Instead, it it often requires well-thought-out considerations of what God has done. Now, we might not think of genuine praise that way. We might think of, well, if it's going to be genuine, it has to be spontaneous. And, uh, but here what we find is that the psalmist actually carefully crafts his words in order to um, put it in a way that's memorable and that, that really you know, poetic. 
poetic, poetic type, of, type of writing. Poetry requires great thought and flowery words often in order to um, drive home a point. And so what we learn from that is that praise isn't always spontaneous, is it? Sometimes it does require careful thought. And um, think about how you praise God in times of trouble. You might think, well, I praise Him spontaneously. You know, when, when I feel like it, I praise Him. But, but really, what kind of things do you use to praise God with? Isn't it true that, that when you praise God, it, you often praise God with a verse of Scripture? You, you're reminded of something that God had done in the past, and you use a verse of Scripture or maybe a song. And if you think about it, you're actually... Uh, building on or using something that's already been prepared that took time for them to write and you to memorize and and say and pray. So technically, your spontaneity is not spontaneity, is it? It's actually built on something that's been learned over time. And um, you know, some people say that, that prayers that are manuscripted are not, um, not, not led by the Spirit. I've prayed before with manuscripted prayers and I found them to be helpful. Um, some people think they're not authentic because they're not led by the Spirit. But, but here's a similar argument that people would say about praise. It's not really authentic unless it's kind of just driven by the Spirit at the moment. Um, but why would the Spirit not be able to work over a long period of time as He does in a simple moment? Not that all everything that we say should be scripted, but, but the point is that um, often... Genuine praise is not spontaneous. It's, it's often thought through and, um, and completely appropriate in doing so. Something to consider um, when you have some time, just as you're thinking through the Psalms, as you're thinking through your own personal uh, time with God, as you praise God, uh, should I take some time to write out what I'm going to say to God and then say it? Or, or should, I, um, should I study more about this issue that I'm... That, that I'm talking to God about and then, and then present it to Him. Uh, something to consider. All right, that's all the introduction. Now let's look at the psalm. Let me read it for us, beginning of verse 1. This is the Word of God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescue them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For to those who fear Him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears are op open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. 
Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of His servants, and none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. So tonight we're going to see that the faithful praise the Lord for His goodness and instruct others to do the same. This is what David does here. Really see this psalm broke up, broken up into two main parts. I'm going to break, break it up into three, but, but the two main parts are what you see there in the theme. The faithful uh, praise the Lord for His goodness. We're going to look at that in two points. And then, and then they also instruct others to do the same. And this is what we were doing when we sang to each other when we began. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. See how we're calling each other in to, to praise God together. That's what we're doing. And that's what David does um, in here as well. And um, you kind of see the theme start to, to play itself out in verses 1 and 2. He says, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise will be continually on my mouth. So he's saying, I'm praising the Lord, verses 1 and 2. And then he's calling others to join in with him, verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And what we're going to see is that in verses 1 through 7, he's going to talk about his own reason to praise the Lord. And then he's going to call others to do the same, beginning in verse 8, going to the end of the chapter. So, let's look at that first one in two parts. The faithful promise to praise the Lord, verses 1 to 3. Faithful promise to praise the Lord. He promises, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on my mouth. So there's some... Hebrew parallelism. Uh, remember, they don't they don't rhyme words like we do in our poetry. Uh, what they do is they do parallelism. So they they say something and then they say it again a little bit different way. And that's what he does here in verse one, at all times and continually. And this is consistent with what we should do with our lips as well. That this is something that is expected of us to do. That we should praise God at all times. Can you think of any passages that tell us? that we must praise God continually in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always. Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. So give praise to God. Have joy in God at all times. Praise Him. Continually let praise be on your lips. Your praise of God is glorifying to God. And notice in the second part of verse 2, it actually encourages other believers. The humble will hear it, that is, of David boasting in the Lord, and they will rejoice. So David has experienced discouragement, much like the congregation of Israel has, and, and, and David was confident that if they listened to his experience and how God had helped him, then they would be encouraged to trust the Lord and anticipate his deliverance as well. And, and that's part of the joy of being part of a, an assembly of believers is that, that our joy and that our experience of God being good to us helps to instruct other people to be joyful in God as well. We'll see that beginning in verse 8. We actually see a, a hint of it here in verse 3 that God is worthy of David's praise and then God is worthy of everyone's praise in verse 3. Here's the first command or the call to praise, we could say, in verse 3. It is, magnify the Lord with me. So I've already promised that I'm going to magnify God at all times, and now I'm calling you to join with me and magnify God for His greatness. Now, to magnify does not mean to embellish, right? A magnifying glass doesn't embellish something. It just simply shows it more in more detail. It shows the greatness of it. 
And David's saying, listen, I shouldn't be alone in praising God because I'm not the only one who has reason to see in God His goodness. You ought to all join in me and magnify God with me. And so let's do this. Let's exalt His name together. And the way that we do this, notice in verse 3, the second part, let us exalt His name. Let us, let us talk about Him together. Let's tell of His works. Let's talk about His character. And, and this is what we should be doing at some point when we get together with believers is we should be talking about the greatness of God. Now, we have built-in ways that we do that here at this church where if you come and you participating in the, if you participate in the singing portion of the service, then you are singing praises to God, but also you are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, aren't you? Have you not found encouragement yourself when you were discouraged or distressed in coming to an assembly of believers and hearing other people sing of God's praises, His greatness, the, the confidence that He's in control? Have you not found encouragement in times like that? And that's what the singing of... Uh, uh, of a church service is supposed to do. It's supposed to give praise to God. We are supposed to sing to the Lord, but we're also supposed to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's a means of encouragement. But there are other ways, certainly, that we can speak of God's greatness, not just in song, but but also as we just talk to one another. Uh, this is what what's called fellowship. This is actually Christian fellowship where we're encouraging one another, building one another, one another up in the most holy faith. So, is there something that God has done in your life that, that has been good this week? Is it something that, that's worth talking about? Then, then call others to join in praising God with you. David certainly saw, God, uh, saw God's goodness and wanted others to join in with him. So, the faithful promised to praise the Lord. Secondly, the faithful praised the Lord for his goodness. So, the first main section is this. The faithful praise the Lord for His goodness. And this is the specific reason why David is joyful, why he is praising the Lord in verses 4 through 7. Now we know um, that David was running from Saul, and yet we don't know exactly why he's so joyful. We just know from the, from, from the inscription there that, that he was running from Saul and, and he was trying to... Um, to to be protected from the Philistines. And here he tells us exactly why, or at least generally why, he's, he's um, praising God. He says in verse 4, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David had seen the goodness of God when God delivered him from the Philistines. And David is confident in verse 5 that those who gaze on God will not be disappointed. Look at verse 5. Um, they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. So all who look to God, he's saying, all who gaze on God, who look to God, and that's a, the, the idea there is gaze, will not be disappointed. That That is, that they're not going to be ashamed. So that when we trust in God, you realize that, that when we trust in God, there will never be a time in which we regret doing that or we are ashamed. We will never say, you know, man, trusting God is just a huge mistake. I wish I wouldn't have wasted my time and energy doing that. And why is that? Why is it that we will never be ashamed when we trust God? Because 
God is always faithful and good, and He lovingly responds to the requests and the needs of His people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you trust in God that you will never regret it? Because David believed that. The times that I hang my head in shame do not come when I trust in God. The times when I hang my head in shame are the times when I rely on my own ingenuity and fail to bring God into the situation. That's when I feel shameful. Because I'm standing here trying to take care of this situation all on my own while I have the sovereign creator, the great king of the universe, standing right there, willing to help me, holding out his hand, and I won't even ask him for help. That's the times when I feel ashamed because I don't trust him. And in those times, it actually draws me back to God because when I realize what I've done, I say, God, please forgive me, right? I mean, why did I just... Um, I, I didn't even ask for your help. I tried to do it on my own. And, um, but when I trust in God, I think you find this to be true as well. When, when I trust in God, I'm never ashamed. This is what David is saying. Those who, who fix their gaze on God and put their confidence in God... They are never ashamed. They never hang their heads in shame. David found deliverance from God in verses 6 and 7. Deliverance came through a specific answer to prayer. It says, This poor man cried, talking about himself, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Now again, we don't know what the specific request was, but based on the, the inscription, the historical context, it must be that he was asking for deliverance from the Philistines as he's right in their uh, city, one of their capital cities. And and we we might look at that story where David feigned madness, where he pretended to be crazy. Um, We might look at that story and think, you know, that's a lot of human scheming on the part of David. But what David sees it as is not that he got out of that situation because of his ingenuity, but rather that God delivered him. And so what that tells us is is that apparently while he's, or maybe before he feigned madness, that he called out to God in help. He called out to God in help. And and when the Philistines didn't kill him, then he, he responded to God with praise. David found deliverance from God through a specific answer to prayer. And deliverance didn't come just through him staying alive, but his deliverance came through God's presence. Notice verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Whenever you have this phrase, this five-word phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it always refers to the pre-incarnate Christ. It always refers to the pre-incarnate Christ. That is, this is Christ, the Son of God, coming to the earth in the form of a human um, what, what theologians call a Christophany, where he, 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 makes, he manifests himself as a human. And, and here, Christ is coming to David and encamping himself around. He, he's setting up camp around David so that when the enemies want to come in and, and do whatever they want to do to David, who is there to protect him? See, the point is that, that Christ is David's refuge. What David is telling us is that God Himself came to help him. And that not that what God does in times of trouble? That He encamps Himself around those who fear Him. 
Have you found God to be faithful in that way? Have you found God to be near you in times of trouble? When our safety and our devices have all been spent, we, we still have God. God is always near. So the faithful promise to praise the Lord. The faithful praise the Lord because of His goodness. And then here's, here's the main section of... I uh, missed a couple there, but that's all for free. All right? Let me go back in case you want those. Then we'll go to the next one, which is the, the final point here is the faithful instruct others to praise the Lord, verses 8 to 22. The faithful instruct others to praise the Lord. All right, so first, in verses 8 through 14, there's three main points here, uh, subpoints we could say. First, God blesses those who fear Him. God blesses those who fear Him. David praises God for His specific deliverance, but, but he knows that his praise of God should not end with Him. That, that this praise should not be a solo praise session. And it's not what he's not saying, okay, don't, don't come away from here saying I should never praise God on my own. That's not what, what I'm saying, but that's not what the text is saying. But he's saying it should not end there. That should be the start of it. That should be kind of uh, the beginning. And, and what should happen is that the report of David's deliverance or experience of God's goodness should be spread to more and more people so that it invites them in to do what we said in verse 3, which is to magnify the Lord with me. Come and experience God for yourself and His goodness. So God has been good to David, verses 1-7. through seven. And here He's saying, now why don't you all join in with me? Since, since God has been good to me, should not God's goodness to you be the cause of you raising up or lifting up your praise to Him? Should, it, should you not consider the goodness that God has um, that, that you have seen from God? So experience the goodness of God for yourself. Let's see if I've got... Um, experience the goodness of God for yourself. Notice what he says here in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Taste and see. Taste is an easy metaphor to understand. You know, I could come in tonight and say, have you tried the cheese bread at Green Lantern? Right? Because it's amazing. And, you know, I could bring some in and you could smell it and I could, you could watch me eat it. And I could tell you about all the great pleasures that I am enjoying, that I am experiencing as I'm eating this cheese bread in front of you. But you know what's even better than that? To taste some for yourself and to see that this cheese bread is the best around. Now the point is, not that we should compare God to a greasy snack, but the point is that, that there is a difference between hearing about something and tasting something from your, for yourself, right? There's a difference. And what David is saying is it's not enough for you just to hear about how God has been good to me. What do you need to do? You need to taste God's goodness for yourself. Because do you know how God is? Second part of verse 8. He, he, is, he blesses those who take refuge in Him. This is how we taste of God's goodness. We find refuge in Him. So what kind of trouble are we experiencing? Where, where is it that we can find refuge in God? 
as we do that, we'll experience that God is indeed good, like David knows him to be. The goodness of God is poured out on those who trust him in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, um, O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. Sounds like Psalm 23, doesn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Right? In other words, God's going to provide everything that I need. He's a good shepherd who's going to lead me to the best pastures so that I have exactly what I need. Notice he continues this idea in verse 10 that the lions, they lack at times and they actually suffer hunger, but, but those who seek the Lord, they are never going to be without any good thing. There's never going to be a time when someone who finds refuge in the Lord is going to be without what he needs. Now, that doesn't mean that no Christian's ever going to go hungry. Paul went hungry, right? He said, I, I went several nights without food. I, I went where I didn't have enough clothing. I, I went without, you know, shipwrecked, all sorts of trouble that he experienced. And so clearly that doesn't mean we're, we're never going to have any of our... Uh, it, it doesn't mean that, that um, we're going to be without... Um, it doesn't mean... I've got to get all my double, double negatives right. Okay, it doesn't mean that we're, we're ever going to, to be without any need. What it does mean is that, that God will give us whatever it takes... To, to give for us what is best. Okay, it goes back to Romans 28, 28, 29. That God does for us. Uh, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and those who are called according to His purpose. So that good is explained in verse 29, which is that He would conform us into the image of His Son. And if a temporal need is not met, that is, if, if we go without food for a time, then and, and that brings us closer to God, then that's actually what God is doing. See, um, Even Jesus went without food, remember, for 40 days and 40 nights. And so um, I, I don't think what David's promising here is that we'll never have any of our physical needs um, unmet. But what he is promising is that God will always be good. We will always have exactly what we need. In verse 11, we see that trusting God can be learned from watching others. He says, come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So in verse 9, he said, fear the Lord, you his saints. So you come and revere God for who he is and, and, and who you are in comparison to him. But let me teach you. Let me teach you what that looks like. And, and this is, again, why it's so important to be within the context of believers, to, to live within, um, to live in a place where we have other believers in which we can, with which we can meet. Because it's true that, that we tend to come up with the wrong idea about reality. And we look at things wrongly at times. And we need to learn from the Lord. And do you know who we learn from? We learn from other people who fear God. And so I'm thankful for people in this church who fear God and who teach me how to fear God better. And I hope you know of people like that as well. Don't just hear about how good God is. Taste Him for yourself. Taste His goodness for yourself. Learn to know Him. Learn from others who are tasting of His goodness. Okay? Do, do, you, do you feel hungry spiritually? Or, or maybe you're not being satisfied? Do you, you feel satiated? Well, then look at someone else who's, who's just filled up with the goodness of God. Follow their example. 
This is what David says. Hey, follow my example. You know, I learn from me. Learn how to fear to fear God. In verses 12 through 14, we see the pathway to enjoying the goodness of God. The pathway to enjoying the goodness of God. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see, see good? So is this something that you want? Do you want to enjoy a long life filled with good gifts from God? If so, here's what you need to do. Verses 13 and 14. Keep your tongue from evil. In verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So again, in verse 13, we have this parallelism. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. It's basically the same idea. But it starts with making God's priorities our priorities. If God is a truthful God and wants and always speaks the truth, and He calls us to do the same, then we should follow His example. If that's important to God, it should be important to us. And so, first, fearing the Lord means that we must control what comes out of our mouth. And then second, fearing the Lord means that we must pursue wisdom. In verse 14, we must guard against the evil. In other words, if you think about it this way, protect what comes out of your mouth, verse 13, and protect how you act, in verse 14. That's part of what it means to fear the Lord. And, and that, that includes pursuing peace. Do you notice that peace is something that doesn't just come magically? It doesn't come automatically. It comes when we, verse 14, we seek it and pursue it. So is there strife at your job? Is there strife in our church? Is there strife in your home? Well, that kind of peace is not going to come automatically. You have to seek it and to avoid evil, and that's part of what it means to fear the Lord. So we should praise God like David because God is good to those who trust Him. And secondly, we should praise God like David because God is near those who trust Him in verses 15 through 18. God is near those who trust Him. Now, one of the things that I haven't um, pointed out yet is the use of all the use of the word all. Um, notice verse 4, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And then, uh, let's skip back up to verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. Verse 6, This poor man cried, the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Verse 17, The righteous cry and the Lord hears and, del- and delivers them out of all of their troubles. Verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers out of them all. Delivers them out of them all. And so what you have here is a comprehensive work of God. The comprehensive goodness of God. Those who fear Him, those who turn to Him, those who are righteous, those are the ones that God delivers. And do you know what He delivers them from? From all of their troubles. All of them. And I think David is repeating that for emphasis so that we don't miss the point that God's goodness is comprehensive for the righteous. And I think the greatest expression of God's goodness to us, whether in times of prosperity or in times of trouble, is His nearness, His presence. We see this in several ways. First, in verse 15, God's nearness means that He's always watching and listening. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. God is always watching and listening. Secondly, God's nearness or His presence means that He always accomplishes good for His people. Verse 16, The face of the Lord is against the evildoers 
cut off the memory of them from the earth. He always accomplishes good for His people. The face of the Lord, this idea of showing His favor towards, um, towards those who are righteous and, and actually pouring out His judgment against the evildoers. Thirdly, God's nearness means that He hears and delivers His people. Verse 17, The righteous cry and the Lord hears and deliver them, delivers them out of all their troubles. This sounds like verse 6, doesn't it? This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. So David's saying, listen, I did it, verse 6, and God saved me out of all of my trouble. And what I'm telling you now is that you, when you cry, any righteous person, when they cry, God hears and God delivers. Then verse 18, God's nearness means that He won't abandon us in times of trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. This is a promise I think is universal that goes beyond, that transcends times, not just for Israel, but it's a promise for all of us. But notice that it's not a promise for for simply anyone when they lose a loved one, for example. You know, the Lord is near to anyone who loses a loved one. No, not necessarily. Not in the sense that He is near like encamping around them and being their protection and their comfort. This is a promise for what kind of people in verse 18? The brokenhearted. Now, it's not just talking about, man, I broke, broke my heart to lose my, my spouse or something. No, it's, it's the people who are contrite of heart or those who are crushed in spirit, the humble, that is. And so this is consistent with what we learn in James. I think it's 4.4, 4, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Right? God is near to those who are humble. That's what all these words in verse 18 are referring to, the brokenhearted, uh, the crushed in spirit that, that uh, God is near to those who are humble. That is, remember we talked about humility is, is the, the idea that God is completely holy and I see Him for who He is and see myself in light of my sin. I see God and myself in a proper perspective. That's humility. So, we should praise God like David because He's good to those who fear Him. He's near to those who trust Him. And thirdly, He delivers those who are righteous. I already had it up there. He delivers those who are righteous, verses 19 to 22. Now, what you should notice here in verse 19 is that God never promises that we will be free from affliction. He says many, in fact, He promises the opposite, doesn't He? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And as Christians, we have the same promise, don't we? That, that we will, through many tri- tribulations, enter the kingdom of God or all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution, or Jesus, if, if they persecuted me, you can be certain that they will persecute you. So, so here's what we don't have as a promise that we will be free from affliction. But what we do have is that God will, notice the second part of the verse, but God delivers, the Lord delivers him out of them all. So the afflictions are many for believers, but God delivers them from many. He delivers them out of, uh, out of them all. And, and you recognize that sometimes that means immediately, you know, we get into a trouble, God delivers us out of that trouble. Or, like with David, eventually, you know, he's there in Gath, he's in trouble, and, and it might not be immediately, but it takes a little bit of time, but eventually he's delivered out. But, but I hope you recognize that there are some people who will have a trouble in their life, some believers, 
they will have a trouble and not be delivered from that trouble in this lifetime. But here's the promise, that we will be delivered from it. And what we need to know is that if we are not delivered from our troubles immediately or eventually in this lifetime, we will be finally in the next lifetime. That is, that, that when we get to death, we will have been delivered from our trouble. This is what the, the Hebrews 11 is about. Right? You had, especially at the end of the, the book, where, or the end of the chapter, where you have all these people who died without receiving the promise. Their trouble in that situation is an unrealized promise. It was not fulfilled. And yet what happens? Several of them died by the sword. You know, Isaiah was sawn in two, likely from history. We think it was he that was hiding in the hollow of a tree and was sawn in two. And, and others, you know, others just lost their children and so on. And, and, and the point is that eventually they died without receiving the promise. But what happens on the other side of death? It's life. And a reception of the promise, a receiving of the promise. And I think this promise is, is applicable to us. That yes, the afflictions of the righteous are many. And God may not deliver all, us out of them all immediately or eventually in this lifetime, but He will do it finally. And that's the promise that we have. Verse 20, God is concerned about your well-being. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So this is talking about some kind of trouble. And here, the promise that David is making is that God's not going to allow you to be harmed in your persecution. And I think we need to look at this spiritually, that that he's, doesn't mean you're never going to have a broken bone. If you have a broken bone, you're not a believer. That's not what he's saying. Although John did use this in chapter 19 to um, to apply it to Jesus on the cross, right? That, that this fulfilled what was said in Psalm that, that none of his bones would be broken. So the point is that God's going to protect to protect his, his people from being harmed in persecution. And, and then verse 21, affliction will not cause you to die without hope. Affliction will not cause you to die without hope. Evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. So for the wicked, they're going to be the victim of their own evil, um, their 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 evil is going to lead them to their terrible demise. But for the righteous, we have a promise that we're going to be delivered from our trial trial in this lifetime, or we're we're going to die with hope. That is, that we will be delivered in the next. Verse 22: God is worth worthy of our trust and praise. The Lord redeems the soul of His servants, and none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Two simple applications. Number one, this goes right along with, I think, the point of the text, which is the first part, verse, first seven verses. Praise God for His goodness. So you individually praise God for His goodness. So how has God been good to you? The report of, of God's goodness from the pen of David tonight is supposed to compel us to think about, okay, in what ways has God been good to me? And as a result, we individually, or you individually, ought to respond with great praise. And, and what do you have to praise God for tonight? Is not God near you? Does He not always hear and respond? Does He not come to your aid 
Does He not come to you in time of need? And, and does He ever abandon you? Certainly He does not abandon you. Instead, He, like the angel of the Lord, encamps around those who fear Him. So while our lives may be peppered with trials, and they are, we can respond with we can respond to those trials and even in those trials that you know what I know that God is good don't fear that this trial is going to break you or destroy you because even suffering and pain persecution are not beyond the scope of our experience as believers they're not beyond the the sovereign hand and control of God because when we trust in God, He will deliver us. Now, we like to think of God's blessing. Like, if God's blessing me, if God's being good to me, we like to think of it in terms of things that we enjoy. You know, like, okay, give me lots of money, give me good health, give me good peace in my family, and so on. But, but isn't it true that God can be good and that He can pour out His blessings to us in times of persecution and trouble too? Remember John 9 and the story of the man who was born blind? What did the disciples say? What did they ask? Who sinned? This man or his parents? And how did Jesus respond? It wasn't either one of those. This is not a direct, directly connected to someone's sin. Instead, it's so that he was born blind so that God could be glorified in his healing and his salvation. And the point is is that whatever we may face, we don't face it alone and we don't face it outside of the control of the Almighty God. God will deliver you from all of your trials. So you have something to praise God for, so, so do it. Secondly, second main point of the text, which is teach others to praise God for His goodness. So if you have something to praise God for. If you have tasted and seen that God is good, then you ought to be calling on other people to join with you and magnify the Lord with you and exalt His name together to, to taste and see for themselves that the Lord is good. And there are multiple benefits to doing this. It, it helps someone who's in the midst of his trial to remember the goodness of God because, do you know, we, we can get so uh, unfocused in times of trial, can't we? Because the only thing on our mind is that circumstance. And, and when we have someone else who comes along and says, I have been, through, maybe not through the same thing, but I have seen God be good to me. And, and when you do that, as the person who's calling on someone else, you actually remind them about God's goodness, don't you? You help them to remember God's goodness so... I may not see it now, I may not see it you know, when this trial first started, but what I do know is that I can trust my God and I'm now going to be looking for God's goodness. So that's one of the benefits. It also helps someone who's going to experience a trial shortly have his mind calibrated. So maybe you're not helping someone who's currently in a trial, but maybe you're helping someone who's about to go into a trial. And they don't know it, you don't know it, but as you're calling them to say, hey, hey, look for the goodness of God in life. Their mind now is calibrated to the truth of God so that when the trial comes, that person can say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or as he says later on in the book, you know, even though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Yet will I trust him. And so you can not only help someone who's in a time of trial or prepare someone who's about to go into a trial when you call on them to see the goodness of God, but, but one of the other benefits is that your calling others to praise results in greater and long-lasting praise. Because what you do is you kind of uh, set a perpetual motion in order. That is, that, that you see God's goodness and you praise God and then you call others to, hey, open up your eyes and see God's goodness and it calls them to praise God and now they're looking at, at their circumstances through the lens of God is good. And then when the trials come or when they think back to past circumstances where it felt like God was punishing me, how do they view those circumstances now? They, instead of being quick to quick to condemn God because of their trial. They're slow to condemn God and quick to trust God, aren't they? And so if, if we can, if we can um, leverage the love and the joy that we have in God because of His goodness to, to compel others to rise up and see God's goodness in their circumstances, then what we are doing is we are, are setting off kind of a ripple, a ripple effect right throughout our church and through the people we know that, hey, God is good so that His glory will redound as more and more people ascribe to Him the glory that is due to His name. And as they go through trials, they're expecting that God will do good because they've seen God do good in you and are reminded that God does good to them. And so we need to not only praise God individually for His goodness, but we need to to do our part in teaching others to see God's goodness. And I think this is the difference between giving a man a fish and teaching a man to fish, right? If we If we simply say, hey, look at what God did to me, I'm praising God, so why don't you praise God with me? That's one thing. That's, I think, giving a person to fish. And I'm not minimizing that at all. We should do that. But how about not only doing that, but also calling them to be faithful and righteous before God, right? Because what kind of people... Remember in the text, uh, verse 12, Who is the man who desires life long length of days that he may see good? Who is it that wants to see good from God? Well, it's the person who guards their tongue, and guards their actions. So, so here is, yes, call out to praise in God. That's good. Calling other people to do that. But how about call other people to faithfulness? And what's going to happen is, is that they will, with their lives, live an alleluia, a song of praise to God each day with their lives. So let me just just encourage you tonight to taste and see that the Lord is good because those who look to Him are radiant and they never hang their heads in shame. Let's pray. Father, we have found You to be a good and faithful God and we can think of specific times even this week in which You were near us, in which You uh, spoke to us in Your Word. You reminded us of how sweet it is to have a relationship with You. 
And Lord, we want to praise you for that and we want to encourage others to do the same. Lord, I pray that this night would be filled with much praise as we go to our groups to pray. And I pray that that you would be pleased in how we think about you and how we speak to you. Lord, help us to be faithful and to uh, work to call other people to do the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Anyone need a prayer sheet? Do you have any extra there? No? All right. I need one.